Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Warning. This podcast contains spoilers mainly for Prey. We talk about uh, I Am Groot on Disney+. Plus. There's no way to spoil that. We also talk about uh, Harley Quinn, which is currently in season three. We talk about some plot stuff. But if you're catching up on Harley Quinn, you're in season one and two, and or you just want to start season three and you're worried about it, yeah, don't worry. You can listen to this conversation, including our really, really wonderful interview with Justin Halpern, and you will not be spoiled. Uh, listen on. You have been warned. Jason Concepcion, welcome to X-Ray Vision, the Crooked Podcast, where we dive deep into your favorite shows, movies, comics, and pop culture. So many favorite shows this week. In today's episode on Previously On, we're going to be talking about more WB Discovery drama in the airlock. Oh, lots of stuff, including the delightful I Am Groot and the action-packed Prey. Watch it now on Hulu in the hive mind. Co-creative Harley Quinn Justin Halpern uh, comes and sits down with us to tell a lot of really hilarious stories about Harley Quinn, and it's great, and it's a great time. Joining me today for all of that is the number one comics historian, the number one comics reader, knowing more about comics, the characters, the plots, and all the weird stuff that goes on in there than any other human alive. It's Rosie Knight. Rosie, how are you? Ah, I'm so happy to be here to talk to you about all this stuff and to now have a career of all those things that you listed, which used to be something people would be like, please stop talking about that. (laughs) Those were like a list of like, please stop talking about it. But now it's like, hey, please talk about it. Buy Godzilla versus Batra now. You can purchase it. You can purchase it at the local comic shop near you. Let's get into the news because there's so much. First up, more WB stuff. Uh, so we, we were talking about this story last week. And of course, the earnings call that we were all expecting took place on the day after we recorded our episode. Uh, and it was a news-packed earnings call. Rosie, why don't you take us through it? Whew. Well, so a lot of what we had talked about last week came true, which was essentially yeah. a big breakdown of what is going to happen. So that's on the Warner Brothers Discovery Q2 earnings call. It was announced that HBO Max and Discovery Plus would merge into one streaming platform to launch in summer 2023. We thought that would probably happen. The details are currently sparse. Uh, No name, no subscription price at this point, though the hint and implication was that it would be expensive. So it's going to be expensive. From what they were saying on the call, it seems like it will be based on the Discovery Plus app, Mm. which is a very popular, well-rated app, according to David Zaslav of Warner Brothers fame. (laughs) Uh, During the very intense and 
I wouldn't blame you if you turned it off because it was public. You could listen to it. I listened to it. It was very numbers heavy. It was very financial. But there were some incredible moments, including when they put a slide on the screen that listed the two audiences of HBO Max and Discovery Plus. HBO Max skews male, scripted, lean in, appointment viewing, home of fandoms. Discovery Plus, female skew, unscripted, lean back, comfort viewing, home of genre dubs. As you can imagine, internet went wild. I still don't know what a genre dub is, Jason. <laughs> I still have no idea. Yeah, and, and it was basically lots of questions. There was some very interesting stuff near the end when a caller from Deutsche Bank asked about Batgirl and Zaslav spoke quite extensively about his vision for DC. He called The Flash a terrific movie, but he also said that they could make DC better, which was not particularly well received during the call. So yeah, it's been very interesting. And since then, we've had a lot of other news. So, so um, yeah, gosh, yeah. Let's, so let's first start with the DC of it all, which we can come back to in a second or, or touch on, but essentially laid out a 10 year plan no, to. They said, no, 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 no. Let's not give them too much credit. They said they were putting together a team to make to, to a 10 year plan. plan. So there's no 10 year plan. Let me, so let me start with the, let me start with this. There's no doubt, right? And I think any fair observer is, will say this despite some notable successes and some notable box office successes, right, that the DC properties have been mismanaged. You know, you could point to any number of indicators to let you know that that's the case. That said, and I've been consistent about this for a long time, I personally believe, I don't know when this will happen, but DC will figure it out because... These properties are never going to – nobody's going to stop yeah. making Batman. Everyone That's never wants to make a Batman movie. It's always yeah, going to happen. Everybody wants it. They're going to want it 30 years from now. They're going to want mm -hmm. it 300 years from now, assuming that we are here as a species 30 and or 300 years from now. That said, the stuff right now is, is mismanaged. Uh, you've got some successful stuff like the Joker that's going to get a sequel, but of course that takes place in a separate universe yeah. than the kind of shared universe that they've been trying to launch off the ground. And then you have, uh, you know, issues related to the cost cutting, such as Batgirl getting shelved. Uh, and all of that looks kind of funky in the context of, what appears to be the continued support for the Flash movie, yes, which is a whole, which costs upwards of two hundred fifty million dollars before has, any kind of marketing, right? Has quote unquote tested well, whatever we don't know what that means, but apparently it's been testing well. That's fine. Uh, and stars Ezra Miller, who is in the midst, literally in the midst of numerous legal problems. And a spin out that is epic in in scope, yeah, just and has been you know basically a fugitive for the last several months. Yeah. That said, uh, a Hollywood recent Hollywood Reporter uh, article has a, a really 
a really, really nuts uh, sentence towards the mm-hmm. final paragraphs. Uh, quote, Miller participated in regularly scheduled additional photography over the summer, apparently without incident before being charged with burglary. Was Ezra Miller not a fugitive? Were they not a fugitive at that point from everything we know? So apparently, according to the authorities, Ezra Miller has been housing a family of a, which includes a woman and her children who Ezra apparently met in Hawaii. And this person had been posting on social media from a location that, according to this Rolling Stone article, uh, the people have recognized as the interior of Ezra's house in Vermont. This was in July. Yeah, and people had even reported that they had been there and seen the family there, and there was even reports of babies being around a lot of open weaponry, a one-year-old who had a bullet in their mouth. There's all kinds of almost... uh, It's bad. It's very bad. And it's very bad and not good. Yes. And the thing that Jason was about to tell you, which is really a very worrying situation, that had been going on for a while. Rolling Stone reported on it around a month ago. But this week, the Vermont Child Services had been trying to serve a protection order for those children and that mother. And Ezra Miller is now claiming they don't know where the family is. They haven't been living there. And that doesn't seem to align with the social media posts, which have now stopped. It is an alarming situation. It's alarming. And even on the day of the Warner Brothers, the highly anticipated, very buzzword heavy. I mean, Zaslav could have said synergy no more times. There was no more times he would have been able to say it in that call. On that very day, there was more reporting that came out about Ezra reportedly running a kind of flop house cult in Iceland and taking in vulnerable people, taking in people struggling with addiction problems and treating them very badly. And This just doesn't seem to be going away and only seems to be escalating. And I still find it absolutely mind-blowing that we're in a situation where there has been no statement from Warner Brothers on this other than the Flash is coming out. It's going to be out in June 2023. I know that they say that, but I... It feels like it can't come out. I, it can't. There's no. I know that we're saying that right now, and we're roasting Zavlav and, and WB for the support of this, but there's legitimately no way I, it can happen. In, I thought maybe there was a world. There were. I was having conversations with people when the Batgirl news came out, and I thought maybe there was a world that they were scrapping in inverted commas Batgirl to build it in to the Flash to move the emphasis off of that version of the flash and to bring in more of this younger new more inclusive justice league which apparently that film was going to to launch but if they're going to follow the trend that recent reporting from tax filings revealed that warner brothers did take a 825 million dollar write down on content that they canceled or didn't use so if they're going to do that with batgirl which they have set a precedent for then i don't think that they can use it in the Flash movie. So I'm just really, Mm. I'm very confused about where this is, especially because the Batgirl cancellation news, I mean, 
DC Films president Walter Hamada, who I am, I have to say, I just need to put this out there. I understand that it's very hard to look at any film franchise about superheroes in the context of the MCU and look at it and be like, well, this is good. Because really the MCU did something unprecedented. Warner Brothers, I'm just telling you this now, you will not be able to copy it. You already tried. So this is going to be a dark universe, universal monsters, Justice League all over again. Like you can't replicate it. That was of a moment of a mindset and of a desperation to get out of bankruptcy that created something absolutely incredible. And the thing that kind of blows my mind is I understand that it has been mismanaged and it the, the general yeah. overview does not support the kind of success that the MCU has had. But Aquaman made $1.7 billion yeah. and it was so yeah. great. And, su- and the new Suicide Squad movie was so great. And I absolutely loved Harlequin and Birds of Prey. I, I'm not a fan of Joker, but that really worked for a bunch of different people. I yeah. think that there is a world where if they wanted to make the most successful version of the DCEU or whatever it will be called from here on out, they need to still allow directors to have a full creative vision and to do experimental, weird, unexpected stuff. Aquaman is so different from anything else. And yeah, yeah. loads of people think it's corny. I love it. It's one of my favorite movies. I love it so much in the world of the DC I- comics and stuff. And I think that I would hate for them to lose what has made some of their movies so successful and so great. The Batman. That is not a commercially viable movie in an MCU-style situation. Three-hour-long emo goth story about, like, a sad guy. I completely agree with you, and I'd go a step further, you know, whether Hamada steps down or not, who knows. But I think there, and this is not, this has been opined, and many people Mm -hmm. have said this, and even Zavlov has alluded to it. They need... A figure. That, like they've a always needed that. They've, they've always or, needed who that. Can, who can bring order to all of these kind of disparate stories. The strength of the MCU is that you can have a movie that is critically panned, right? That is not good. Thor The Dark World, the sequel to Thor, is, you know, arguably, and I think many would pick it as one of the worst if not if you're ranking them it often comes at the lowest no matter who's but then what happened but then what happens ragnarok comes after that and it's one of the best and all of that stuff ends up still mattering all of the stuff from dark world still Mm -hmm. uh Mm -hmm. impacts the overall world the overall story the overall storytelling because all that stuff happened if they can figure out how to tie all of these different tones and different colors and grimness and lightness uh, together from all these different characters and textures, it will lift the entire project. I agree. Because even if something sucks, or even if it's like Batgirl, maybe it didn't test well, it doesn't look uh, high quality enough, whatever, you've still got the fuel for other stories, yes. the yes. fuel yes. for yes. the lore of the world overall that can use to make the entire DCEU feel textured and populated and a place, you know, vibrant with all these different characters. And that's really what kind of needs to happen. Like, and so I think that, and I think that they will get there again. I don't know if it's in 20 years or when, but I just think that one, there's too much money at stake. Mm -hmm. And two, these properties are too iconic for them to never, it's, it's like at a certain point, 
it's like uh, just by brute force, they will figure it out. But that's really what they need is someone to sit atop all of this to kind of draw all the lines so that they intersect at the same point. Yeah, I, I think that's the biggest question for comic book fans. I'm sure our listeners have thought about this because even if you're not in the weeds on the business stuff. A lot of yeah. the business stuff of this is is what gets us excited, whether it's the, the comic book boom and bust that ended in the 90s, you know, whether it's the speculation market, whether it's how Marvel Studios was founded. But even if you're not really into that side of things, you know who Kevin Feige is. Everybody does. And I think the biggest question right now is who can be the Kevin Feige for Warner Brothers? They can call us. I think we'd do an okay yeah, job yeah, at we're it. Here. <laughs> I'm like, give us a call. <laughs> but I mean, it's very hard. Feige had such a unique journey. And lo- not only just the love of the comics, especially the 80s stuff, which I love because now he's really getting to dig into that. But he had a production history in making some of the first contemporary superhero movies. You know, yeah. he was so ready to be in that place and to take on that role. So I will be very interested to see who they can find. And I think they need to think outside the box. I think they need to find someone who has a vision and a way. Because the thing is, as we've said many times on this podcast, DC really is the multiverse trailblazer. So it's not even hard for them to find a way to tie this together. In fact, in that Hollywood Reporter article, very good article, they mentioned that Hamada had kind of had this vision when they were going to put out three crisis. or four films a year yeah. to do a crisis on Infinite Earths. Yeah. So I think there is a big space to do that. I, I found it very interesting, another thing that was on the call, that not only did Zaslav say they wanted to make a 10-year plan, which we recently heard Feige say they were doing over at Marvel, but he specifically said that it's a very similar to the structure Alan Horn, former DC CEO, Bob Iger and Kevin Feige put together very effectively at Disney. We think we can build a much stronger, sustainable growth business out of DC. As part of that, we're going to focus on quality. We're not going to release any film before it's ready. And then he said the iconic words that I'm sure will come back to bite him. DC is something we can make better. As <laughs> Hollywood well, Reporter we, mentioned, uh, we will. Well, we'll see. <laughs> I, I, you know, I have a. I, I mentioned this. We talked about this in our pre-pro meeting, but I just want to put it out there. I think a kind of underrated part of the MCU's growth and how it managed to be what it is, which is the biggest, you know, movie uh, dollar generator in the world, is the fact that when they started launching when they came up with the Iron Man, and then all of a sudden the news started to break that oh they're they're gonna they're gonna launch Hulk, they're gonna launch Captain America, they're gonna launch Thor, and they're gonna do the Avengers. the The response was kind of like, who who the like the, we don't nobody the response was basically nobody cares about Thor, yeah, like Captain America. That's hokey. Iron like, Man. These people didn't even like Iron of, Man back then. It's yeah, hard to explain, but that of, was a deep cut character. Yeah, these were thought of as like C list characters and i think that helped the mcu kind of sneak yep. under the radar of expectations and take over whereas with uh, dc it's harder because it's like fucking it's superman you know what i mean like it's it's superman the daddy of <laughs> superhero the, yeah. it is the guy it's fucking batman it's wonder woman and i think 
any attempt to to do something with those characters is just feels so fraught before you even start. And I think it's an underrated part of of how the MCU was able to do it because I think they were able to kind of sneak by everybody who didn't yep. understand how cool these characters well, were. And I think you actually hit onto something that DC films and TV has already someone there already knows that that's a part of it. But as we're going forward, if DC can recognize that, they can do the same thing. I'm going to go back to Aquaman. That is a character barely anyone cares about. I love Aquaman. I love the campy There's cartoon. There's some stuff. You know, yeah, yeah. But it's it's Aquaman, right? 1.7 billion, highest grossing DC Comics movie ever, right? That is what you can do when you do something with a character that people are not too worried about. That is what you can do when you find a director like James Wan who has a vision for that character, a story they want to tell. So I think you're onto something. If DC, Harlequin, now people do love her. She has become what they call the fourth pillar of the DC after Superman, Wonder Woman, and Batman. But again, you can do something a little bit out there. You can do an R-rated TV show. You can play with the conception of who this is. It's why the Suicide Squad works so well. Polka Dot Man. No one was out here like, I need a Polka Dot Man movie. But David Desmolshin made that character unbelievable. And James Gunn bought it to life in a way that somebody could find something really special in it. And same with Ratcatcher too, you know, that the yeah. Taika Waititi has the un- most, most unbelievable cameo in that movie that's just everything. And I think that you've really hit the nail on the head. I love talking about that side of the MCU, about how I know you don't believe it, but once Captain America was not an A-list character, you know, people don't remember. <laughs> know, yeah. But it's true. People don't remember it's that, true. yeah. But I think you've hit it. If DC can find a visionary who understands that Superman, Batman, the Justice League, that's something you work to. That's also, I like, I loved the Batman movie, the recent one. You can let, maybe let those three exist outside of your main world until you've got five, 10 years in. You can do all kinds of stories. You can tell all kinds, you know, Blue Beetle, that is apparently still on the cards for next year, theatrical. Let's keep... Hope so. Yeah. You know, Source Air Plastic Man. Like, there's so yeah. many different, weird... Cool, Atalia Argul movie. Like, there's so many different, yeah. weird, cool things and so many characters. You could do rogue movies. Joker did really well. You could do all different kinds of things. I think you hit the nail on the head. Let's leave Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman. Let's let them sit for a little while. Let's let them get that legendary status and let's build a world that is something unexpected and that can go a little under the radar till it hits and becomes that, you know, fertile ground for something yeah. more. I I remain on the record. They will eventually figure it Definitely. out. Don't ask me when. And uh, uh, by the way, I just started, I've been reading Aquaman Andromeda on the Black Label, DC's Ooh, Black yeah, Label. It's really art. great. Ramvi and Christian Ward. Really, really great for the for those who are Aquaman curious? There's so many great Aquaman books. Kelly Sudaconic did a great Aquaman book yeah. recently. There's yeah, there's a lot of fun to be had there. Uh, yeah, you should check out Aquaman. Good stuff. Before we get into the airlock, I just want to announce that we're gonna uh, we're gonna be running our Ask the Maester House of the Dragon segment going forward. It's gonna be coming up in in coming weeks. If you have a question. Once House of the Dragon starts rolling on August 21st, Sunday, August 21st, you have a question. What happened? What? Who? What is this place? Who are these people? What's going on? 
hit us at askthemaester at gmail.com, askthemaester at gmail.com, and we may answer your question on the air. Up next, the airlock. With less than 100 days until the midterms, it's safe to say midterm madness is setting in right now. You can find all new Vote Save America merch in the Crooked Store. A portion of every single order on the Crooked Store goes to Vote Riders, the leading organization focused on informing citizens of their state's voter ID requirements and helping them secure the documents they need to vote. So check out crooked.com slash merch for the latest drop. Then head to votesaveamerica.com to find out how to get involved and do your part in the lead up to this year's midterms. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. (laughs) Well. Ooh, yeah. That happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. Auto Trader. We're stepping out of the airlock and on to the Benatar to discuss the exploits of Baby Groot, plus the really, really excellent addition to the Predator franchise, Prey. Let's start with I Am Groot. Uh, Written and directed by Kirsten Lepore, a incredibly talented animator, partner of Daniel Kwan. Oh. Of Super Everything couple. Everywhere All at Once fame. Wow. Power, Power couple, couple folks. Power couple folks. Uh, uh, voice acting by Vin Diesel, of course. Bradley Cooper's Rocket. Uh, James Gunn makes a little cameo. It is five really, really short vignettes. Um, for a total runtime of something like 20 something minutes. And let's just, let me, it, it basically tells the story of Groot after the events of the first Guardians of the Galaxy. Groot has sacrificed himself to save his friends and has been reduced to nothing more than a twig. And then eventually that twig takes root. And what happens then? What happens before we catch up with Groot as, as a, as a surly teen in the events of Guardians of the Galaxy 2, this is what happens. I Am Groot is what happens. Uh, and it's it's in a, almost like a like a uh, stop motion style, but not. And it is just really, really wonderful. Like, yeah. really fun. It's such a showcase of animation. It is Disney reminding people that this is what 
their company was built on. Like it definitely harks back to that old era of Disney shorts that are so iconic now. And I absolutely love to see that. I love to see experimental animation. I love to see animators getting to have fun and push things to kind of the limit. And each episode has such a different visual texture and tone, but they all feel the same. I mean, Groot, they all have really funny names. I didn't realize, I assumed it was like any show on Disney Plus where it's I am Groot and then it's a series but it's not. Each one is listed separately on Disney+. Plus. So when it came up on my Disney+, Plus, I thought that the whole show, because I have an English Disney+, Plus account, I thought that the whole show <laughs> was called I Am Groot the Little Guy. And I was like, what? This is so cute. I was like, this is definitely some weird European thing. But that's just the name of the episode. But yeah, Groot Takes a Bath. That was my favorite episode. Oh, that's my favorite Great, one too, I think. beautiful animation. Looks gorgeous. So many funny physical comedy beats like this is predominantly non-verbal uh yes storytelling i i think this is a great they've been doing this with like the spark shorts and stuff i think disney plus this is a really great platform to bring short animation unexpected animation non-linear narratives and stuff i think this is a very cool way of using the platform and it's something that not any really no one else can do it and to your point about like early Disney animation, like Steamboat mm-hmm. movie kind of style, that is there. Like there is this, there is this weirdness, this wonderful strangeness that you see in a lot of that kind of like early yeah. 20th century animation of just like strange things that all of a sudden are alive. Yeah. Uh, and, and acting in, in different ways. Uh, and, you know, all of that, tied together with this character you already know, Groot, it just is kind of magical. And there's like a really childlike bit of wonder to mm-hmm. it that translates because you're like, oh my God, what what thing is going to start moving next? Yeah. Like, what is this flower going to be? Uh, and again, it's not stop motion, but it f- the textural and feel the movement and the way he and, moves. Yeah, it, it's yeah, definitely it influenced all, by... And the, it, Something that I find really is very like silly symphonies as those old, a lot of the old Disney cartoons. I definitely had this moment because there was a big TikTok trend maybe a year or two years ago, which was the silly symphonies skeleton animation, which, you know, is like a hundred years old or something now. And I was, when I was watching this show, I was just thinking like, I could definitely imagine in like a hundred years kids watching these as that kind of like, oh, look what animation was like back then. Mm. Also, on a slightly more cynical, but also just very clever level, I have two, I have a niece and a nephew. Actually, I have many, but I have two who are young. And they both predominantly watch YouTube and short animation and short videos. So I also just think this is a really interesting cyclical. Back then it was short because of the nature of the business and how much you could animate and how much you could want to pay people to actually make an animation so you could only do it for so long because of the technological developments at the time. Now, that same format is actually the format of choice, especially for babies and and little kids and stuff. So I can imagine that there's going to be a lot of parents who are going to be watching these five episodes a lot. (laughs) Yeah. Do you have kids... uh Put them in front of yeah. I Am Groot. They will absolutely love it. Up next, 
what a tone switch, what a what a content switch. Uh, Prey on Hulu, uh, directed by Dan Trachtenberg of Ten Cloverfield Lane, uh, starring Amber Midthunter as Nehru, uh, Dakota Beavers as Tabe, Dane DeLiegro as the Predator. This is a, a Predator prequel. It is 1719. Uh, and uh, a young indigenous woman is kind of bucking the culture of her tribe in being an, you know, wanting to hunt, being an active hunter. Uh, she recognizes that there is something out there in the woods that is not a bear. It is not French trappers. It is not a mountain lion. It's something else. Uh, and then she goes head to head with uh, the predator in an action packed uh, story. Super, I this is such a surprise, like one of those really, really fun surprises that you know. I was not sitting around going, Oh, the I can't, you know, I had a, a predator movie, uh, I can't wait for the next predator movie, and it just kind of like snuck up mm-hmm. and is great, yeah, it's really great. I I was sitting around waiting for a predator movie because I just absolutely love this franchise, but objectively, this is. Such a surprising, thoughtful, brilliant, stripped-down way. It's not a requel. There's no original returning characters. It's not meta. It's just this absolutely stunning... The cinematography in this movie is just mind-blowing. For, you know, for a smaller budget, mid-budget movie... You don't feel it at all. No. I I mean, not at all. I wish I'd seen this. This is a classic situation, I think, especially because it's now they released the numbers and this is Hulu's biggest launch for a movie ever. I think yeah. they're probably wishing they put this in the cinema now. I know until I Miguel, certainly... Until Miguel wants to fight by Shea Serrano and Jason Concepcio, directed by Oz Rodriguez sometime in 2023. Okay, That's sorry. definitely going to be the biggest right, film right. launch ever. We're going to make sure of it on this podcast. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but like that... I, I would have loved to see that on the big screen. They did a, a limited yeah. release Beyond Fest, did a couple of screenings that were free. I didn't manage to make it out. But um, it is so good. And I think something that's really great about it is it's very subtle and slow in its beginning. It has this really YA feel to it. I love the idea yeah. of kids and younger women watching this movie. It's very much this journey of growth, this journey of team rebellion, but for all the right reasons. It's a it's a slow story that that lets you see the world of these indigenous people and their community. Trachenberg was joined by indigenous producer Jane Myers, who had a big role in making sure that the movie was authentic and showed real indigenous life alongside the horror action of Prey. And there was a lot of work that was put in to make it feel authentic and real and not just be like here's the predator in this space yeah and also but when it kicks up and it gets to that action it's just so good which doesn't surprise me at all because dan trachtenberg i love 10 cloverfield lane it's so so good and it very much has that slow mysterious journey before you get to that wild action and Dakota Beavers and Amber Midthunder are just so good. They're kind of revelations. Yeah. yeah, there's something about there's something really invigorating about a story about 
Indigenous people in North America that is not a meditation on the horrible genocide that was perpetrated against them. That is, uh, that is people in their element living at like the midst of their culture amongst each other, amongst safety, amongst complete understanding about who they are. That part of it is really cool. And to do it as a genre movie, you know, with this kind of alien interloper that comes in, just adds like so much spice to the stew. Mm -hmm. um, there are wonderful callbacks to the original Predator that that fans of that movie will recognize, yep. um, uh, such as the moment that uh, Naru is is falls into some quicksand and then pulls herself out. Um, a bunch of moments like that. But this is really like a movie that stands on its own in a really fascinating way. And it's a cool moment for indigenous storytelling, like kind of like writ large, what with reservation dogs, other stories that are centering uh, indigenous characters. Uh, Amber Midthunter uh, has been outspoken about you know, that she doesn't take period pieces. She doesn't want to do that kind of the tragedy of of what happened to indigenous people in North America. And man, this is a really, really fun action, freaking action packed movie yeah. that takes a lot of surprising twists and turns for an action movie. Yeah. And Amber Midthunder's Nauru is like, that's a final girl for the ages because yeah. not only is the action great, and it's very much in the story. She already training to be a warrior. She she has all these skills. But you get to these parts in the movie where her smarts and her wit and her planning are just so good that it's like you will literally be responding out loud because her planning is so smart and it's so quick. And it's very much in that horror movie tradition of yes, the woman it's very who can outsmart the monster, whether it's Jason or Freddy or Michael Myers or whoever, or the Predator. And this is the first time we've gotten to see that dynamic, really. Yeah. Alien vs. Predator, Sana, she outsmarted that, but that's a different kind of movie. Yes. But this is this is so much fun to watch. And the the final act, I loved all the movie. I love the pacing. I, I, I love a slow burn. But that final act where you really get to see Nauru and Tabe in this space with the Predator, who, by the way, unbelievable Predator design. It's a it's a kind of really, it's, really it's cool a different design. design. They actually managed to make the Predator look scary with the mask off, which has never been done before. And uh, yeah, I just I thought it was so much fun. If you love horror, I would say watch it. If you also just love adventure movies, I I have a very high tolerance for to for horror, so it might be a little bit gory for some people. But in general, I think this is like a really great adventure action movie that just happens to have a little bit of gory predator. I'm glad you I'm glad you mentioned the horror because this movie does a thing that great horror movies, particularly great slasher movies, do really well, mm -hmm. which is the monster at a certain point becomes like the sword of justice. Yes, our hero is absolutely at th under threat from the predator, as is uh, her beautiful dog, Sari, mm -hmm. is absolutely like threatened by the predator at every turn. You're wondering, like, is she going to make it out of this? But also, like, the assholes who don't think she can hunt 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. They will pay the price. The French trappers who are abusing the land and don't know how to how to respect the land in the same way the people who live here do and who take uh, Naru uh, captive and are indeed like torturing her to try and get her to help them hunt the predator. They will pay the price. Everybody who is, you know, uh, uh, morally out of line will pay the price is such a, a yeah. theme that I love about horror movies. But you know what I love about this that you make such a good point is like in especially original 80s slasher horror which is so much one of my just absolute biggest passions that morality is very Christian and, and heteronormative yes. and, yeah, yeah. And, and repressive but here that is subverted to be about the real morality it's the it's the colonizers the the, yes. the people who are destroying the land. It's all these different... It's the people who, like you said, couldn't believe it. It's the violent men who attack her. There's, yeah. And in that way, it becomes very cathartic. Yes, it does. Uh, love this movie. Uh, if you haven't seen it, watch it now. You can watch it on Hulu. And you can watch this. When you watch it on Hulu, you will have the option of watching this all in uh, the Comanche dub version. Up next, Hive Mind with Justin Halpern. <laughs> Welcome to The Hive Mind, where we explore a topic in more detail with the help of expert guests. And this week we have a, a big-time expert guest. We have Justin Halpern, co-creator of the super, super funny Harley Quinn. Justin, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I am very, very excited to be here. Uh, tell us about how did, how did Harley Quinn begin as a project? How did this start? I wish I had like this really uh, amazing story that is about like, uh, you know, creativity and its inception. <laughs> but uh, literally this starts in the most kind of uh, sort of like bureaucratic, large company sort of way, which is that I was under an overall deal with my my partner under an overall deal, Warner Brothers, and an executive from Warner Brothers, uh, Susan Rovner, who's now the head of uh, Universal called us and said, hey, would you want to make an R-rated Harley Quinn cartoon? We don't know what it would be about, but do you want to make it? <laughs> and we were, <laughs> at the time we were like totally like in this, it was, this is 2016. So we're like in this, like we've only been working in network TV, right? There isn't like a bazillion streamers. It's like, everybody's like, oh, could we get a Netflix show? Like that was the only place, you know? Um, and I was like, wow, the chance to do like an R-rated show when I'd only ever done like, fat dad for cbs and like you know all that kind of stuff <laughs> i was like oh my god yes like please like it was like hearing the choppers come take me out of the prison yeah. camp i was like yes we want to <laughs> let we want to do this and so they said well you got to come in and pitch it pitch your take you know because i think yeah. if they didn't like our take they'd go to somebody else and uh you know, being a huge fan of sitcoms, my partner and I were just like, let's do the Mary Tyler Moore show, but with Harley Quinn mm -hmm. as the center yeah. of it. And that was kind of how it started. Yeah, I love that so much. I mean, when post the pitch and kind of getting into the show, did you realize, obviously one of the biggest takeaways here and one of the things people love so much about it in an overarching sense is that Harley and Ivy relationship. How early on was that a key part to your kind of long running plan for the show? It was always in our heads a two-hander because Harley, our feeling was uh, Harley herself doesn't feel like she can be the like lead of a show without mm -hmm. someone to bounce off of. So we mm -hmm. looked at it with when we went into the pitch, we said, 
it's going to be Ferris Bueller and Cameron Fry. And she's Ferris. <laughs> she's Ferris and Ivy is Cameron Fry. And we knew we wanted that to be the dynamic. And we listened to like so many great uh, actresses read for Ivy. And it wasn't really till we heard Lake Bell that we're like, that's our Cameron Fry, like mm-hmm. right there. Like we want that. And so we knew that that was the dynamic about, you know, it was these two friends who love each other dearly, who the world has sort of given up on in different ways. Um, And they're sort of all each other has. And one of them realizes that, which is Ivy, and the other one doesn't. She thinks the world all like loves her. Um, And so we always knew that was going to be that dynamic. And then we knew we wanted to get them together, but we wanted to make sure the first season, which is like very much about Harley's like, you know, self-discovery and mm-hmm. of who she is outside of her, her relationship with the Joker. Um, we were like, this is just, you can't tell that story if she just immediately starts dating somebody else, especially yeah. her best friend right yeah. after. And so we said our role for the first season was there's no Harley love stories. There's no dating with Harley in the first season. You mentioned Blake Bell. Uh, can we talk for a moment about this cast? It's like, not even a murderer's row. It's like two and a half murderer's rows. <laughs> uh, from Kaylee Cuoco is Harley. I mean, you've got Christopher Maloney uh, delivering to us what I think is the best James Gordon. Best James Gordon. Uh, DC <laughs> Unquestionably. Unquestionably. Alan Tudyk uh, playing multiple characters, notably Clayface. We could go on and on. Michael Ironside uh, for the old school 80s sci-fi heads. Tom Hollander, Alfred Pennyworth. Uh, Jason Alexander, Ron Funches. How did this all come together? Andy Daly, Mr. Rogan. It's like you could just go on and on. It's actually insane to look at. How did this cast come together? It, it feels insane to me, too, when we look at it. Like, I'm like, how, why did all these people want to do this? Um, I think it was this thing where, okay, so it's a couple things, right? Like, I've worked with actors my entire career. And there's something about being able to do, when you're when you're doing a vocal performance, it's like, you come into a booth, you, you're just like, you're not having hair and makeup, you do your shit, you're, you're have fun and you're out. Mm-hmm. And so first, that first layer of like, oh, am I really going to fucking sign up for this? It's kind of removed, <laughs> right? Because they don't, they don't have to go anywhere. A lot of them can't even do it from their homes. Um, so they're that la- layers removed. And then I think this is really sort of a testament to Kaylee and Lake was that after we got Kaylee and Lake to sign on, when you're pitching to somebody, you're like, hey, do you want to do the show? The leads are Kaylee Cuoco and Lake Bell. And then they're like, oh, well, I'll read it then. Nor normally you're like, they're like, well, fuck off. <laughs> you know, but <laughs> Kaylee and Lake like brought this legitimacy to the project. And so we just kind of went on this run. Uh, we, we called it like our, our sort of like Vegas hot streak where we'd be like, okay, now go out to Giancarlo Esposito. And he's like, he said yes. <laughs> fuck it. Let's keep going. Let's keep going. Let's go out to Jason Alexander. It's like, he said yes. Let's do it. You know, so it kind of became this thing where uh, it was also, you know, we were trying, we wanted every character in the show to be what we call like a home run hitter, um, Mm -hmm. where it's kind of like, because no actor wants to come and do the show, whether it's like they're always doing the expository lines, right? Like, it's like, well, what do you mean by that, Steve? It's like, nobody wants, (laughs) nobody wants to be that. But in this show, we were like, let's make it a point that everyone who comes on the show scores and they get to have fun. And they get to be funny and they get to build this character with us. And also in, in animation, there's not usually a lot of improv, but for our show, mm-hmm. we were like, have fun in this booth, go crazy, you know? And people just don't usually get to do that in animation. And so it felt like this place where like, 
you know, John Carlos Esposito gets to walk off the set of Better Call Saul, and then he gets to come and be Lex Luthor, who's talking about shitting his pants, and it's fine. <laughs> <you know? laughs> That's truly, that sums up the magic of this show. Like, absolutely. And something, kind of talking to, not only is it this, you know, two and a half murderers rows of incredible cast, the amount of freedom that you have within the kind of Harlequin, mm. Gotham world, how much fun is it and has it been to kind of dig really deep into everything? You can go as deep cut as some weird, you know, Kite Man is a major part of this show before we <laughs> even get to like cameos. And by the time this episode's out, episode five will be out. So you also have, you know, Swamp Thing, Constantine, Court of Owls. Like you're getting to do yeah. a lot of really cool stuff. What's it been like to kind of dig really deep into that and utilize that cast to bring these DC characters to life in a way we we definitely haven't seen before? I mean, that's been one of the coolest things about the show, right? It's like, it's sort of like somebody like let you into their room that's filled with toys that normally yeah. they don't let anybody play with. <laughs> yeah. Or it's like, yeah. you have to brush my Barbie's hair this way, you know? Um, <laughs> and, and instead it's like, hey, have fun, do whatever you want. And I think part, part of the reason that that happened was because I think DC at the time in 2016, when this thing was coming about, uh, DC had sort of, they had that real stigma, right? Of like, we take ourselves super serious. We have no sense of humor and we're not fun. It's like, mm -hmm. that was like the, how the world was kind of like that. Yeah, they had that stigma, right? And so when they came to us, they literally were like, that's not us. I swear, you know, like we're not those people. Like make a funny show and show people we're not these, those <laughs> people. And so DC really kind of like let us go. I mean, to their credit, like, you know, I have no idea what it's like to work at Marvel. I've never worked at Marvel. I've only worked at DC. But what I can tell you about like DC is, and is that they give you the rope to hang yourself. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, yeah, and and sometimes that that you know ends up allowing you to create something that you never would have gotten to create anywhere else. Yeah. And so for us, it was like, oh man, it's awesome. Like we can just go through some of the. You know, and we we borrow from some of their big stories, like we did No Man's Land in in mm -hmm. in, uh, in yeah. our season first season, first so two seasons. Yeah. You know, so it's like we really tried to like do a show that comic book heads would like, but also if you've never seen a comic before, you could enjoy the show. Were the takes on the characters kind of always there? I mentioned uh, the wonderful uh, Christopher Maloney as Jim Gordon, who begins, you know, as kind of this super super cracked out on caffeine like schlubby guy and has since evolved into like a kind of proto-fascist who's like running for mayor. <laughs> um, were those takes always there or did it kind of evolve over time as as the talent would come in and, and give voice to these characters? So some of them did and some of them didn't. Like we, 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 a lot, every time anyone in the cast came in, they helped us build that character further. Like mm -hmm. Chris Maloney was like, I mean, we had said before and we were like, look, our commissioner Gordon if that person actually existed, he would have the most severe PTSD of any human being alive, right? <laughs> like, there's no amount of therapy that would fix no. this broken man. Yeah. Um, and so telling that to Chris Maloney, he's like, great. Yeah. <laughs> and he, he could go to a dark place. But And then in some cases, like with Bane, James Adomi, and we didn't know what kind of Bane we wanted. We were listening mm. to takes of Bane that were all over the map. And James Adomian came in and he was like, two things happened. James Domingue came in and started doing his version of the Tom Hardy Bane. And I was like, this is, <laughs> this is because he was like, this, 
guy, if he actually talked like that, he would be like his whole life would have been ridiculed. And that's why he works out so much. Right. It's like, beat up bullies. <laughs> and then the other thing that had happened at the same time is when we were doing the character design for Bane, we had a whole bunch of different character designs. We talked to our character designer, this guy, Shane Glines, who did like the original Batman, the animated series, like this amazing artist, um, Bruce, Tim disciple. And Shane drew this, he drew our Bane that we saw. And I was like, Shane, this is really funny. Like, why did you choose that? And he was like, well, to me, Bane is a guy who doesn't ever work out his legs. <laughs> <laughs> he always forgets like, leg day. Yeah, he doesn't do leg day because he just wants to look good up top. And I was like, fuck, that <laughs> informs the character so much. Mm-hmm. Like just hearing that thing. And so that character was built by Shane and us and James Adomian. And, you know, that was how that one was built. So, so we try to kind of like come in with a take of who the character is and then let the actor kind of build from there. Yeah, and you you mentioned, you know, Batman the Animated Series. That's such a formative piece of art and, and creativity and, and TV show for so many of us. And obviously that's where Harley comes from. What's it like to now be kind of redefining or reimagining who Harley is, is in this animation space, you know, decades later? I mean, for me, it blew my mind because like, you know, we look at, if you look at Batman animated series now, um, I don't think you can fully understand how insanely groundbreaking it was when mm-hmm. it came out. Yep. There was literally nothing like it on TV. Kids cartoons didn't look like that. They didn't tell stories that way. Nothing was like Batman the animated series. It completely broke the mold for, for animation for kids that day. So for me as a kid watching it, I was like, this, this is unbelievable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I couldn't, I was mm-hmm. just like, they made this for me. Like, I can't believe <laughs> this. Like, they don't think I'm stupid. They think I'm smart, you know? Like, it was like a TV show believing in me that I could keep up with it um, <laughs> as like a, you know, nine, 10, 11 year old. Um, so to be able to like build off of that in this sh- show and to take Harley to a place that like, you know, at the time we were doing it, hadn't, we nobody really taken her there yet. Mm-hmm. It felt like being able to like realize things that I had kind of dreamed about as a kid. I mean, you just like so rarely get those opportunities in this business to like actually work with the the things that inspired you. So it's been an unbelievable experience for me. Um, You work on this alongside your writing partner, Patrick, who... Um, together, you also launched uh, the critically acclaimed Abbott Elementary. Watch it now on ABC. Um, how'd you two start working together, and what is that relationship like? Man, we we joke around. We've been together. I've been married for eleven years, but I've been married to my partner Patrick for twenty. <laughs> um, we Pat and I met. Uh, we were interns at a band apart productions, which is Quentin oh, wow. Tarantino's production wow. company. Yeah. Wow. In 2001, we were working on commercials and music videos and a band apart was like the biggest commercial music video place. They did Pat and I met right as in, in the office when they were doing in sync's bye, bye, bye video. Um, <laughs> wow. Unbelievable. Which, unbelievable. Yeah, that is unbelievable moment in time. <laughs> yes. I tried to steal shit off this, like that they had brought back from set for the sync video. So I could try to sell it somewhere. I'm so broke. Um, and so we met there and we became friends and, and that was kind of how our partnership had started. Um, and we, you know, we probably didn't make any money writing until probably like eight or nine years later. But, um, you know, that was, that was how our partnership had started and how we met and we've stayed partners ever since. 
yeah, how does that kind of inform you? Talk about the original uh, idea of Harley and Ivy as friends and that kind of symbiotic friendship that evolves over time. Obviously not romantic with you and Patrick, but like, how does that inform this story about two friends that's so key and then getting to work alongside it with your friend and partner for so long? Yeah, it's funny. I feel like it's kind of like infused into the show, a little bit of our dynamic. Like, like Pat is much more Ivy and I'm much more Harley in terms of like, <laughs> and, and what I find when I talk to fans of the show and, is that they'll say, I'm in a relationship, I'm the Harley, that's the Ivy. You know, yeah. it's like, it is a pairing that kind of like exists in the real world, you know, different, obviously, not to the degrees it does in the show. But, but uh, you know, I think like, it it is something that comes out in our writing a lot of times is we're into these stories about like two people who have a deep friendship, but also drive each other fucking insane sometimes, <laughs> you know, as Pat and I do. And, and I think that's always the thing I tell people are always like, uh, oh, I'm thinking about getting into a writing partnership. I'm like, well, you should say that in the way that you would say, oh, I'm thinking about getting into a marriage. It's like, well, you got to like get into those organically because you have to be able to have, you know, really intense arguments mm -hmm. and disagreements mm -hmm. and still like love the other person and come back from those things. And if you can't do that, then that shit is going to fall apart. The relationship of Harley and Ivy is one that I think is uh, deeply prized by fans. Have you, what's the feedback been like? It's been crazy. We went with like the people send us like tattoos they get of stupid jokes that we made in the show. Like we have this joke about <laughs> we have this joke where where Ivy orders a cob salad to impress uh, Catwoman, yeah. and, and even though she's vegan, and and uh, she's like, we should get a we're the cop squad. We get cop salads together. We're the cop squad. We should get a tattoo that says cop squad. Like it's a stupid joke. And then somebody got that tattoo. And I was like, okay. <laughs> In real life, I'm like, this is the pinnacle of, I think, you know, it's it's really like, uh, you know, I am a straight white dude, but uh, I have heard a lot from the queer community that like this relationship being a like solid relationship between two people where we're not just kind of like having them break up and get back together and it's mm -hmm. volatile in that way has really meant a lot to them. And like, we had somebody come up to us at Comic-Con this year and say like that this, uh, you know, seeing this relationship finally like realized in the comic book world and not like hinted at or something like that was just like it a really um, emotionally moving thing for them that helped them kind of like do the same thing in their own life. And I'm like, fuck, I'm just making dick and fart jokes. Like this, the fact that... <laughs> The fact that it did that is 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 such a like an amazing thing to hear when you're just you know it makes you re remember that like oh right like you make these things but they they have they have a life of their own as they go out into the world and like let's put out shit into the world that we think is good like mm -hmm. you know um, and I think that it's been really amazing to see the response to those two together. Yeah, I think that kind of the dick and fart jokes thing is actually part of why it feels so profound, because it's like they get to be in a normal R-rated adult comedy, but they get to be queer. And I yeah. think like that. And also, like you said, like for a long time that was implied, then it became textual. But really, the show is the first place that gets to explore it in this kind of long form way. And something that I think is really cool that, you know, um, you guys talked about a lot is is this notion of as long as you're running the show, Harley and Ivy aren't going to break up. It's not something you're interested in. But now that we're there and we're in that space, honeymoon period's kind of over. What kind of challenges 
does that bring to you on a storytelling level? It's funny. I actually kind of like looked at it um, in a different way. I almost looked at it as a feature, not a bug. Like when we were mm. telling stories, when we were telling stories when they were apart and we couldn't tell romantic stories between the two of them because they hadn't gotten together yet. There were so many stories where I was like, ah, fuck, we can't tell this one yet mm-hmm. because they're not together. And so as they're together, it brings up this opportunity to tell all these stories that we didn't get to tell the first two seasons because they weren't together. Right. And it's like, I, to me, it felt like, Oh, you know, like anytime you make a show with a will, they won't, they, the fear is that as soon as they do, the show sucks, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> it happens, it happens, right. If your whole show is built around, will they, won't they? And then they do a lot of times your show is just like, Oh, now they did. And they're a fucking boring couple. Can't stand them. <laughs> um, and so I think for us, it was like, we kind of felt like, Hey, our show is not built around a will they, won't they? So let's not put, uh, let's not put that kind of pressure on the show. And instead let's allow ourselves to tell, uh, you know, the kind of stories you might tell on any show with two, with, you know, two people who are together. Mm-hmm. Can we, let's, let's talk about the jokes for a second. I opined the other day on social media that, uh, that Harley Quinn has probably the highest joke per minute rate of a show currently on TV. I think people might quibble with that, but the jokes come fast and furious. What is the, what's the philosophy there behind just absolutely spraying us down with jokes? (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to tell you a secret. I think that it is built upon um, insecurity and self-loathing. Like all the jokes, come on. Because here's why. Because every time like uh, I write a joke or somebody, any good joke writer, I think writes a joke, they think, oh, this joke might be a total piece of shit, hacky joke. So if you write a thousand of them, then you're like, by, if you hate that one, there'll be a different one coming up next. And if you hate <laughs> that one, there'll be another one that comes up next. And if you hate that one and so, so on and so forth. And so really it sort of comes from like, you know, like I think probably we all have like that friend who like literally is always making self-deprecating jokes and, and too many jokes. And you're like, <laughs> fuck dude, just calm down a second and believe in yourself for one minute. Um, and if, and, and, but you know, in the writer's room, like you want, you always have that feeling of like, ah, but uh, what if this one's not good? All right, let's write another one, you know? And I think that that's, that's kind of where it was born from. And also just like the writers uh, and and Patrick and I, like, the shows that we loved growing up, like the Simpsons and Seinfeld and 30 rock, like those shows were all built on like a joke every two lines, you know, it was mm-hmm. like a joke yeah, was just yeah. happening, 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 happening. And I love those challenges of, in joke writing. It's just like so fun to, to see something that really hits. And so that's kind of why we, we built it that way. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I think that you, you all take such a, it takes such brilliant advantage of kind of the amount of good jokes there are to make about this stuff like whether it is your you know like i i've talked about this a lot i actually talked to you about it san diego so sorry for repeating myself but i still i've i've watched the season i think it's brilliant i still can't get over like the rube goldberg machine death (laughs) that introduces you know uh rat bat or bat rat uh rat bruce wayne you know things like that where so could you talk a little bit about how how much, because I just imagine it's the most fun, but kind of that building those many, many jokes in, but also always bringing it back to that comic book place. Because that's why the jokes are so good is like so many of them 
feel like jokes you just make with your friends if you read these comics? Yeah, I mean, that that's, you know, it, it's funny. Like, I would say the makeup of our writer's room, it's probably half the people are hardcore comic book fans and half mm-hmm. the people maybe don't even read them at all. Yeah. You know, mm. and and I think that we yeah, we wanted that kind of split because we we wanted to make sure the show wasn't too insular. It wasn't mm-hmm. too inside inside baseball. And I think that, you know, so a lot of times what we do is like, you know, somebody's making it, somebody pitches a joke we talk about percentiles, right. Of who's going to get it. Right. Yeah. And we're like, is this a 10 percenter? Is this a 40 percenter? Is this a, and, and it, it becomes one of those things where I'm like, it's either got to be a 60 percenter or up, or it's got to be a one percenter. And, and because yeah. that one, that 1%. And what I've found is that like, you know, especially with that sequence you were talking about, right. Which if, for those who haven't seen yet, it's like the mayor is killed in this crazy way the mayor of gotham city is killed in this insane rube goldberg kind of way and during this killing a rat family is a rat family that is dressed to go to a show much like the waynes is is, the parents are killed and the young rat holds up the mother's pearls like bruce wayne did when his parents and we we're seeing the origins of what would be this rat becoming batman um and i think that just became uh we, I remember in the moment we were talking about Batman and we were like, how many fucking times are we going to see this man's <laughs> parents die? Too many. How many yeah. times? And then I was like, you know what? We, this is, it, we actually made it into an episode this season coming up, episode eight, but we were like, let's kill this guy's fucking parents so many times this season that... <laughs> <laughs> that they never do it again. That, that it's just... That we've ruined it for everyone else. Like, let's absolutely just beat the audience to death with the amount of times we kill Bruce Wayne's parents. And then we're going to kill little rat Bruce Wayne's parents. We're going <laughs> to, anytime we see Bruce Wayne's parents, we're going to fucking kill them. Because, like, <laughs> we just want, want this to be this like oversaturated thing where we're kind of like poking fun. And again, to DC's credit, DC was like, do it. We love that rat. <laughs> I, I think, you know, as a, when you're just watching TV as a pure audience member and you see, you know, uh, an episode is written by so-and-so, directed by so-and-so, maybe created by uh, some other names. It, it might be hard to kind of like grasp all the hands that touch everything. Uh, tell us like what, how, you know, how collaborative Harley Quinn is, creating this show is. Oh my God, it's insanely collaborative. I mean, one of the th- things I point out is like, you know, we've gotten a lot of like, goodwill about the queer relationship in the show. And I just want to be really clear that if it were left to me and Patrick, we would have fucked up the queer relationship <laughs> in the show. Um, I love accountability. We yeah, love accountability. Yeah. <laughs> we would we would have done a bad version of yeah. that. And the reason that we didn't is because we had queer writers on the show who were like, this is, your idea is bad. Here's a better way we should go with it. You know, and, and I think that that's the thing is like a lot of times you see the written by credit, but or you see the showrunner or whoever. And it's like, but really the thing is, it's like these things are built in a room with everybody's voice, right? And then you write an outline and it's all, everybody's chipping in jokes. Everybody's throwing in story ideas. Everything is, you know, uh, everybody's putting in stuff. And so by the time it gets to a script and then you do the rewrite and people are putting in jokes and people putting in new stories and people have different ideas, And so it really is like, I feel like if you're in a good writer's room, you have a lot of different voices who all come from different perspectives, all helping like build this thing together in the best way that can be built. And that's why you can have a show that 
if left to the two dudes who you know ran it, it would have had a shitty love story that was probably not at all what people wanted to see at the core center of it. But instead, we were able to kind of like get it to a place that feels like it hits it because there's so many different people that are helping make the show what it is. Yeah, and that that is so much more even kind of expanded in this case of animation where you also then have everybody who's animating it and oh bringing it to life. Like, I, I make comics, and one of the best feelings in the world as a writer who is terrible at art is to get back those pages and see somebody bringing those stories to life in a visual way that I could never do. So how does it feel after the first part of that collaboration to then sit down and see these jokes and these characters and, and these kind of archetypal figures who inspired you in that format then come to life in animation. What's that like? I mean, this my favorite thing is like a, a lot of the animators who work on our show, previous to this, they worked on like kids shows, but a secret thing, <laughs> a, a secret, a secret thing about animators is they are so fucked up. They yeah. are like, <laughs> they have the most twisted minds of any human beings I've ever seen. And so when you actually, it's like when you take an animator who has been working on like Peppa Pig or like, you know, Unikitty, for six years and you free them and allow them to be their like really twisted self, then you start getting stuff that is just like unbelievable. Like the, our team, like Jennifer Coyle, Ceci Aronovich, the, 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 all, all of our directors, like their, their, their team just goes for it. You know, like we have that in season, in the fourth episode of this season, there's an orgy happening at the court of owls. Right. <laughs> and, and there was like a couple times in the script where we like specified what was happening in the background, but mostly we put there's disgusting fucking happening in the background and a lot of weird squishy sounds it was like kind of what we said. Right. And we realized after we got back the first boredomatic of the, of the show, the animators, the like disgusting shit that was in the background of that episode was so vile and so like, just like, so disgusting. The sex acts that were in it were so upsetting that like, we were like, wow, you can't, you can never again say to an animator, like people are fucking in weird ways in the background. Cause they, <laughs> so they bring with it. I wish you guys could have seen the very first cut that, oh, that me too. even, oh my God, yeah. <laughs> even HBO, even HBO max was like, absolutely not. <laughs> I love that they bought that. Cause it's that episode is so, um, it's so eyes wide shut. So I'm glad that they brought that nefariousness to it, even if we didn't get to see it. Yes. Um, they, they, so the animation team, I mean, they bring so much to it. They add so many jokes too, like things you'd never, are, that are not in the script at all, are just like, you know, put in, in, in later on in animation because the animators just love having this like, sort of like playpen where they can do what they want. You're uh, running for the board of the WGA, the Writers Union, and you've been really vocal about getting animation workers, animators rights under the union. Walk us through that, that argument. Yeah. So, you know, it's funny. I have two. Uh, we, we have, you know, Harley and then we have now this spinoff of Harley, this Kite Man, okay. you know, show. And both those shows are non Writers Guild shows. And that is a. Uh, that is a function of the fact that I was incredibly naive when I came into the negotiations for these shows when we sold them. We came in and we 
we sold these shows and we said, hey, we're Writers Guild members, so they're going to be Writers Guild shows. And Warner Brothers, you know, the executives who were dealing with Warner Brothers were like, well, we'll run it up the flagpole. We'll see. Because they had never done a, a primetime animated show before. Warner Brothers mm-hmm. Animation had never done it. They'd only done kids animation. It wasn't like Fox. And when we were like three months into our our development of the show, they were like, hey, and we're down the road. We've hired, you know, we're starting to hire people. They're like, we can't, we have to do this IOTC, which is the Animation Guild, Right which just the animation guild great guild for animators terrible guild for writers because the minimums that they pay writers the script fees that they pay writers everything is treated like it's 1945 and walt disney's screaming at them you know it's (laughs) like fuck you you have no rights you're a fucking piece of shit you know it's like that's how that's how writers are treated i believe and and i think that Writers Guild needs to be covering that, right? But the only way we can make that happen with the studios is is because it's so much cheaper for a studio to make a show, IATSE, because mm-hmm. it means yeah. it means they can pay everyone on the writing side way, 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 way less, right? So the only way we're going to get all of these studios to flip is if we, as an entire union, collectively say we're no longer going forward we're no longer going to create new shows that are animated that are not covered our writers our writers are not covered under the guild the animators can be covered under us it's totally fine yeah but for our writers they need to be taken care of by a writer's guild it is a guild for writers justin uh thanks so much for coming on and talking to us about everything you're doing and harley quinn please come back again this is so no fun. yeah thank you Thank you so much for uh, having it. Rosie, I knew I saw you. At, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I had I a like, mask on. I was like, yeah. but I was like, I have to ask about that again because our listeners need to hear you explain it because it's like so good. <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> it's one. Of, I, I also love, I, I deeply love uh, Swamp Thing and Constantine. So I was feeling very pandered yeah. to in episode five. So yeah, no, I was thank actually, you. I was, I was worried about that a little bit because it's such a different Sam Richardson voice, the Swamp Thing. Yeah, and it's such, he's so it's good. Such a, he's great. And it's such a different version of Swamp Thing oh. than we have seen before. No, so. sexy boyfriend Swamp Thing. You're going to be getting a lot of fan art for that one. <laughs> like, oh my God. Un- <laughs> unquestioned. Man bun Swamp Thing. The fan art. The fans are going to love it. If I can just tell you one quick story about fan art. Yes, please. Okay. So I didn't realize when we did the show, the level of fan art I was going to receive sent to me on Twitter (laughs) on a daily basis. And to the point, so, so to the point I've gotten the craziest shit sent to me to the point where I found out that sharks have two dicks because of a fan art that was sent to me. Where it's King, somebody drew, they were like, hey, love your show. And then they drew a picture of King Shark in a straight jacket with a wire wrapped around his balls and his two erect penises shooting out. And I was like, oh, I, what, this is insane. <laughs> but also, this is how I learned that sharks have two penises, I guess. This is like coming from this, like the fan art is so nuts and so crazy. And I, the, the weirder it is, the more I love it. But uh, yeah, it's, uh, I'm hoping to get some good Swamp Thing fan art. Justin, thank you. Thank you again. And thank you for giving us the two dick story. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. It's the story we need. Yeah. Thank you guys for having me. Huge thanks to Justin Halpern and, of course, uh, to the great Rosie Knight for being here with us on X-Ray Vision. Rosie, what have you to plug? 
You can find me on Rosie Marks on Instagram and Letterboxd, where I am this year updating every movie I watch, including lots of bad movies. So you can follow me there and judge my movie taste. You will be able to find articles about many of the things that we've talked about. I wrote an article I'm very proud of recently in regards to another horror movie we haven't talked about, which is Nope. So if you watched Nope and you were wondering if there's really an alien invasion themed electronic store in Burbank, I wrote an article about it. <laughs> it was real. I RIP fries. I love you. Um, yeah, you can find me IGN, Den of Geek, Polygon, all those kinds of places. You can still go to a local comic shop and see if they have a copy of Godzilla Rivals versus Batra. Some places are selling out. That's been a nice surprise. Want to give a big shout out to Secret Headquarters. Um, they did such a brilliant job facilitating giving away copies of the comic. They are out now. You guys really showed up. So thank you for that. And yeah, um, here, obviously, every week <laughs> with you. <laughs> Additionally, we have we have 10. Yes. We have 10 issues of Godzilla vs. Bachelor to give away. Hit us at x-ray at crooked.com. Tell us why you would love to read this issue. Uh, hit us with your address as well, your e mailing address, and the first 10 respondents can uh, get a free issue of Godzilla vs. Batra by the wonderful Rosie Knight and Oliver. X-Ray Vision has a new home. The Take Line YouTube and Twitter channels are now dedicated to all things X-Ray Vision, so go check out at XRVPod on Twitter and X-Ray Vision on YouTube. Plus, we have an X-Ray Vision Discord. You can find the link in the show notes. Our next episode will be on August 19th. Remember, send your House of the Dragon queries to askthemaster at gmail.com. And the five-star reviews, we got to have them. We love them. We, we need them. If you're going to leave a review, please leave us a five-star review. And starting now, if you leave us a five-star review, send us the text of that review at our email address, x-ray at crooked.com, and we will read your five-star review on the air. X-Ray Vision is a Crooked Media production. The show is produced by Chris Lord and Saul Rubin. The show is executive produced by myself and Sandy Gerard. Our editing and sound design is by Vasilis Fotopoulos. Dylan Villanueva and Matt DeGroote provide video production support. Alex Relaford handles social media. Thank you, Brian Vasquez, for our theme music. See you next time! Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. Like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro... Cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.